Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for granting us the peace and serenity to gather together as family in the name of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this local assembly and those willing to support it so faithfully. Thank you for ordaining the spiritual gifts that make it run as well. We pray, Father, that those here this morning and those hearing this message by some other means be lifted up and encouraged. For it was your Son who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We pray that each and every one of us continue to learn what that means and that we embrace it fully while living this life you've given each of us by grace. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is a continuation, part 60, of the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification we began both of our lessons this past week with the words or with words of encouragement from scripture let me remind you of some of those passages first off second thessalonians 3:13 reads but as for you brethren do not grow weary of doing good but as for you brethren do not grow weary of doing good remember doing good um, has a purpose behind it, that you have a purpose, remember that, in time. Grace itself always has a purpose, as we've learned not so long ago. Here are a few principles from our January 19th lesson, which was, by the way, part 41, to help refresh our minds. That was almost 20 hours ago, but hopefully you haven't lost sight of the big picture principles that we studied even uh, not so long ago in January. Big picture salvation. God saves sinners. He saved you. He saves us every single day of our lives from our enemies, from the influences of spiritual death, sin, and evil. Salvation is an activity, not merely a split moment in time. Salvation is a plan that we witness in time. That's how he wanted us, remember, to think about salvation. When we were on the salvation perspective, we're formally or formally on the sanctification perspective now in our primary course of study, but back then, part 41, we were in the middle of salvation perspective, and that's what he wanted you to realize was that big picture that from God's perspective, he saves. From God's perspective, he saves and sanctifies. And these are done deals. We carve them out because we are under the construct of time. We have finite minds. This is how we digest things bitwise. So from God's perspective, salvation is a blanket statement he uses to describe his plans for his children. Salvation is a blanket statement he uses to describe his plans for his children. Go to Ephesians 3.11. Ephesians 3.11 that's the way we have to think about it. God saves. It doesn't matter what tense you're talking about. 
The fact is, He saves. It's His good work by grace that He saves. Think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 3.11 This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see the, the centerpiece of our faith is Jesus Christ, of course. And attached to that is the eternal purpose of God. So Jesus Christ is sort of the means of carrying out that purpose. So this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Up here in the board, another borrowed principle from, the, uh, from part 41. The eternal purpose refers to the church's supreme purpose of glorifying God. We members have been predestined to partake in that activity. This is our purpose. We're part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And we have a purpose as members of that body. And it was eternally wrought, if you would. The purpose was known to God before any of this, before human history even began. So we have to think big picture. This is our purpose as members of that church. Ephesians 3.12 In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Verse 13, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, for example, sanctify us, I mean, who could know the things that he would do in your life? as he sanctified him. Some of us look back five, two, five, ten years ago, and you say, I cannot believe the way my heart has been changed over the past two, five, ten years. Who would have known? So now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, like sanctify us, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that's just Paul once again saying, you know, in another way, I am what I am by the grace of God. In other words, I would have never known that my mind would have been blown this way. And hopefully you feel the same. One other passage from our January 19th lesson. Go to Acts 4.28. Acts 4.28. So I'm just still borrowing... And this is a very good thing to do. I don't know if you do this, uh, probably not, but I would encourage you to. Um, go back on a series that's this long. If nothing else, go back to the website and just look at the, the outlines. The outlines are all there. Just pick one, you know, every, I don't know, every fifth lesson. Go back and look at the outline and say, oh yeah, I remember that. Look at the outline, read through the outline. It'll take you literally a minute. The outlines are this long. They're basically my slides in uh, text format, okay, and any graphics that we might have had. Do that thing. Go back. If it's 60 lessons long, 
I'm, all right, you ready? Newsflash. You're not that smart. Your memory is not perfect. Which means that it would be a good idea to keep, if you're really interested in keeping the big picture, you know, where we've come from, what we don't want to lose. 60 hours is a long time, right? So go back to every, go to the first one, go to the fifth one, go to the tenth one, go to the fifteenth one, go to the twenty, whatever. Do it in tens, I don't know. Just don't do it in sixties. <laughs> right? Acts 4.28 to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined, that was that Greek word, proorizo, your purpose predestined to occur up here on the board. Again, another borrowed principle from that lesson. Your purpose predestined, predestination always carries with it the purpose of God. And then we went into predestination. Remember, you're predestined to suffer, you're predestined to prosper. So we had this whole sidebar on predestination. This is really how it started. Your purpose predestined. Predestination always carries with it the purpose of God. His will is intrinsically represented in every fact, every blessing, every grace gift, even suffering and discipline. So we have to look at our lives this way. And this is the wonderful perspective that the Spirit wants us to cling to this morning. And it's a great way to get started. The fact is, as we've learned that you have been predestined to receive grace in so many magnificent ways. That's God's purpose. Now go to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. I'm going somewhat quickly. These are points of review. Romans 8.28. Another passage that we studied out in detail as we got into the endeavor of learning more about predestination. Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Do you know anything about calling? You know that that was something that He ordained before you were even born. He knew that you would be a believer, and so He called you. He elected you, more theologically speaking, elections in view. Um, but there was a purpose to that. There was predestination tied to that calling. And so to those who are called according to his purpose, he works all things together for good. Why? Because he's intrinsically good. And if he's going to sanctify you, it's going to be sanctifying you in the direction of goodness. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, who is the very manifestation of goodness, we ought to be conformed to the image of His Son. That doesn't mean we're going to look like Him or even, quote, necessarily be like Him, but we'll have His morality, so to speak, His mind, His heart, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Just skipping a few passages forward, look at verse 37 where He wraps it up. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how... Step back for a moment. You read a passage like that or 
passages like that. How encouraging is this for believers? It should be very encouraging for us. It means God's very intent on not losing us. He's not going to fail at saving us daily. He's not going to fail at sanctifying us daily. These are promises from God. These are some of the anchors that we had established in our souls. The anchor points in our souls when we started the first 20 or so lessons on the gospel. For a lot of people have the gospel wrong. A lot of people don't understand what the promises of God are. When He promises or when He saves you. What actually happens. Certain promises are in view. Like, He's going to continue to save you and deliver you and sanctify you daily. So how encouraging is this for believers? Please never lose sight then of the big picture in the spiritual life that God has a purpose for you. Always has. It's not like he lost sight. He said, ah, I gave it a good shot with you, but you're cast off now. If you're still here, if you're still breathing, he still has a purpose for you. I think of uh, Pat over here who's probably suppressing a cough, right? Which, <laughs> she's, like, <laughs> she's like, oh, that's a good, that's an opening. <laughs> right? But you know what? She's here. She's here as faithfully as she could possibly be here, right? And she's coughing up a storm. She has emphysema, right? It's a bad thing, right? Not to call attention to you, but we love you. But she's here. And if she's here, then you know what? Cough or not, God has a purpose for Pat. I know one right off the bat. I can see her. I am personally encouraged by her being here. That's a purpose right there. And then when I'm encouraged, all of you benefit. Sorry to draw attention to you. Not really, but. (laughs) So God has a purpose for all of you. If you're here this morning, you have a purpose. And that when he saved you, like he knew he would, his plans for sanctification began in time in such a way that if you are truly saved, you begin seeing it. It's inevitable. May we be encouraged to press on, not just for our own sakes even, but for the sakes of those surrounding us, like I just described. Go to Hebrews 12.1. Go to Hebrews 12.1. If you're a myopic, self-absorbed, egocentric person, you never think about other people. You just say, I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like doing this today. I never think about anybody else, so there's no repercussion beyond me. That's how a lot of people think, and that's how a lot of people miss something like Hebrews 10.25 that says, do not forsake assembling together. They miss the whole point because they're self-absorbed. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, look at Jesus Christ. If He could do the greater, you can do the lesser. He did the greater by grace. And you have that same access to grace. And you ought to go as 
Hebrews says as well, boldly to the throne of grace. To ask, as James would say, without wavering. A dipsukos, without double-mindedness. For that person ought to expect nothing. One last passage for the sake of encouragement. Up here on the board, I'll give you the Amplified of Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not grow weary or become discouraged in doing good. For at the power, or excuse me, at the proper time we will reap if we do not give in. So then, while we as individual believers have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, not only being helpful, but also doing that which promotes their spiritual well-being. Oh, you mean we're individuals, but there's also this relationship with others, remember? Individuality, relationship with others. Remember I gave you the the, the number of blogs on individuality versus relationships. These two things are primary things that the Spirit's had before this congregation. He says, don't not be yourself in Christ. I'm going to sanctify you, but I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to change you, and you're going to be unique in my plan. But God gives everyone a measure of faith. But I also don't want you to become an island. I also want you to understand that this whole thing is about people. And we collide with other people as a result of being individuals. If we were all drones, we wouldn't care, right? But we're all very different, which means we have to relate. We have to learn what it means to relate to one another at a spiritual level even. So let us do good to all people, not only being helpful, but also doing that which promotes their spiritual well-being. And especially be a blessing to those of the household of faith, in other words, born-again believers. I hope you realize that all of this is... Part of being sanctified. You might say, well, these things seem disjoint to sanctification. Because sanctification is sanctification proper. I want to know about sanctified, sanctification, holy, holiness. I want to know about all the theology and the category. Listen, all of these things are part of being sanctified. And since life is the backdrop, it is a very practical reality to ponder. Not just an academic, theological one, like, say, positional things even. Those things are slightly less relative to life. Of course, they are the anchor, they are absolute, they are an inspiration for living the spiritual life. But you know what? Life happens. Life happens right now. That gavel came down. We are positionally sanctified. But what about now? What about experiential things? Well, experience is very practical. That's why we call it life, you know. Sanctification is diligence to enter his rest. Hebrews 4.11 For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his own personal works. Hebrews 4.10 Therefore, restlessness is the antithesis of sanctification. If you are restless, something's missing. If there's a restlessness in your soul, something's missing. So keep pressing on, learning, seeking, take the encouragement the Spirit just spent the first 20 minutes of class on. Take it in stride. Nobody here is perfect. We're all growing. We're going to make mistakes. We're going discour- to discourage ourselves probably more than anything. But keep it going. Keep pressing on. For God promises that you will find what you're looking for. Go to Luke 11.5. Luke 11.5, God promises that you will find what you're looking for. If you seek Him diligently with a humble heart, 
He's going to actually give you what you're looking for. Luke 11.5 Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, this is Jesus obviously, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and said, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, and it will so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Remember also that God abundantly blesses those whom he blesses. He doesn't just let's say throw them a bone, which is what comes next. Look at verse 11. Now suppose one of your fathers, or one of you fathers, is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who, who ask him? This is why Paul a master at understanding and teaching practical sanctification, spoke so boldly in what we might call, as of now, in our primary course of study, our anchor passage. Go to Romans 1.16. So Paul was a master. Jesus was a master at teaching sanctification, teaching what we might call, in our studies as of late, practical sanctification. You notice that Jesus did teach theology, but... He taught differently, folks. He just said it the way it was. The way he spoke was very practical, very relatable. Paul was also a master at understanding and teaching practical sanctification. Look at Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, that's that Greek word dunamis, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. A lot of activity, a lot of movement in there, a lot of things going on in there. And speaking of the power of God in the context of experiential sanctification, on that word dunamis, I gave you this nice little graphic, just to remember that this is what your plans, this is how God views your plans. Right? See you later. He's not interested in your plans. You see, man's plans are really to sanctify himself. Most people, well, all people, in their flesh say, I'll take care of myself. I'm a self-made man, or I'm a self-made woman. I have plans. Sure, I'll go to church. I'll do the good doobie thing. I'll do this thing if I can get up on time, if I can set my clock right. I'll do this thing, but after church, it's all me again. After that, it's all about me again. I'll take it from here, God. And God says, The power of God is able to squash your plans. Go to Psalm 33.10, and that's a very good thing for you to realize. It's a very good thing. You say, you know what, that's better because God's plans are perfect and they're always good. 
They always have even my best interests in mind, which is not something I can say about my own plans. My own plans are self-absorbed and arrogant and presumptuous, and therefore they are imperfect, and therefore they cannot have my best interests in mind always, at least. Psalm 33.10, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. So your measly little plans for your own life are really a joke. God scoffs at them. Uh, and we're really good at making them. There are bestseller books on how to make them. There are bestseller books on the habits of people that make them. All these kinds of garbage doctrines that are worldly doctrines. Do this, get that, do this. This is a, this is a best habit. I mean, I used to learn until I was blue in the face in the industry. Oh, do this, do that. Hey, read this Bible. I'm not reading that stupid book. Are you serious? I got, I got this book. What do I, need to, what do I need to read some idiot's book? on how to be successful. I know how to be successful. It's right in here. But that's the way the world functions. And God scoffs at our plans that we make as a function of that world system of thinking. Now, let's get back to where we left off on Thursday. Concentrate, okay? First things first. Spirit wants to talk to you. He's reaching into your soul once again and saying, we need to get real. We're talking about practical sanctification. We'll get back to the theology when it's the right time. But right now, you have enough theology already before you that we need to get practical before you go piling it on again in the real things that really matter get lost in the shuffle. You know, lost in some category. Oh, that, that was way up here. That was point A, 1A. We're down, way down here in, you know, uh, 17C. And I don't know what the heck's going on up there. But my notebook's filled. Before we get into any more doctrine, any more academics, uh, which are good things, which really do build things up. But before we do that, he wants us to be practical. So first things first. If experiential sanctification is a practical issue, and it is, how does one, quote, get practical about it once they understand the theology? So I just told you. He's already given you enough theology to have these thoughts. Well, what say you of sanctification? What does it mean? Practically that God's going to sanctify me and save me daily. What does that mean? Not just give me more theology. What does that mean? Before I move on, before I get more complex in my, quote, theology, what does this first one mean? So how, does it, you know, how do you get practical understanding what theology you might have to date? First, you have to understand, again, the concept is first things first. First, it's God's job to change, sanctify us. So we mustn't force the issue. Man's primary job is to remain humble, receiving what he gives us. For example, knowledge, wisdom, perspective, etc. Our job is to stay humble. More on first things first. Arrogance will try to hijack the simplicity in sanctification by inserting itself as a, quote, practical doer of sanctification. That's the basis of perverted religion. A person, in other words, that's, their heart hasn't yet been changed, but yet they see a command in the Bible and they run out and do it, and they think that's pleasing to God, but their motivation is wrong, their heart is still you know, disgruntled about doing it. God says He loves a what-giver? 
a cheerful giver. So he's going to change you so that when it's time to give of yourself, and it's not always stuff, it's more importantly, most of the time, your personal, your person, giving of yourself. He's going to change your heart so that you're going to want to give yourself to others. Because that's what Christ did. Amen? But religion comes in and says, I will insert myself. Now I have all the theology. It's right there. It says, you know, do this to orphans and do this to widows and do this to the person across the street and do this person has a need, blah, 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 blah. I hate doing it all, but I'm going to do it. Because when I go to church, they all say, oh, you're such a good, you're such a good lad. <laughs> I saw what you did to uh, Gretchen over there. You're such a good lad. That's religion. And arrogance hijacks the simple things in the spiritual life. Simply put, a believer must first accept the basic fact that God intends to change them, their person, their essence, their very sense of being. That's God's job. First things first. God intends to change you. Philippians 1.6. He will change you. He's promised to change you. A humble person waits for it. An arrogant person rushes it. An arrogant person takes the principles of one of those self-help books and superimposes it on the Bible, on the spiritual life. says, this book told me I should have a five-year plan, so I'm going to take that concept and superimpose it on God, and these are my plans, and God goes, He's like, I don't have five-year plans. If I want to give you something right now, I'll give it to you right now. If you need to wait, you're going to wait. Who knows? He's sovereign. It's his will. But a humble person waits for an arrogant one, rushes it. Arrogant Christians always have something to prove. That's one of the things you can tell. Uh, you shall know them by their fruit. Arrogant Christians always have something to prove. It's like they have a chip on their shoulder, which actually undermines the very thing they are trying to prove in the first place. I am a spiritual giant. Listen to me roar. The fact that you're doing that proves that you don't understand the first thing about Christ's heart. It just says you're intelligent. There's a lot of educated idiots in this world. So arrogant Christians always have something to prove. Just listen to them. They're usually in the corner somewhere or front and center beating their chests. Now, all that is baseline perspective that has been laid for us. Let's revisit that subtle point now, and I'll start slowing down a little bit. This is a subtle point that the Spirit left us with on Thursday. And it has to do with you. And when I say you, put quotes around that. You. Who you are. Who are you? He wants to decipher a few things for you. So that you're not confused about who you are. And when the Bible says you are going to be changed, He wants you to understand how you're going to be changed. Wisdom. To be experientially sanctified doesn't simply mean that you understand more. An unbeliever can understand the morals in the Bible. Unbelievers make posters out of Proverbs and Psalms. They do it all the time. That's a good thing to have. You must have it too, but that's not the end game. So, to be experientially sanctified doesn't simply mean that you understand more. It's that you are more. Now, because as a result of your mind being transformed, Romans 1.12, for instance, there's a real 
result in view, not just a new understanding regarding a way of doing business, so to speak. There's a real result in view. Okay? It's because of the fact that you have been changed as a person that you are able to do good works as an instrument of righteousness. You are going to be changed. And when you're changed, things like being filled with the Spirit, listening to Him even more, allowing His influence to dominate your life, those are things that actually increase over time. What you used to listen to before, or what you used to ignore in terms of conviction from the Spirit before, you no longer ignore. Why? Because your heart has been changed. You've been sanctified to a greater degree. So when the Spirit says, let's help this person out. You go, yeah, I really want to help this person out. Let's do this thing. Yeah, I really want to do that thing. Oh, by the way, that's a command too, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I wasn't thinking about it like a command. No, you weren't. Because your heart's been changed. Isn't that something? Like I've taught you, the commands in the Bible are God's will for you. He doesn't want to tell you to go help someone need. He wants you to respond to a need and say, I want to do it. That's when you know that you are changed. When you actually want to do those things. That's what this is all about. And that's not a thinking issue. Let's put it this way. Five years ago, you might have known it was the right thing to do, but you didn't do it. You didn't want to do it, so you didn't do it. Your theology didn't change. Your perspective really didn't change on the situation. Five years later, you really want to do that thing that you didn't want to do before. Why? Because you have been changed. Your thinking hasn't been changed. You changed. You didn't learn anything new about a need, did you? No. I mean, what else is it to nerd? If, if there's someone on the ground writhing in pain, and you're saying, oh, I, got, I, don't, I don't have time for this. Five years ago, and now you say, today, i got to go help that person. I don't, so such, such and such thing can wait. Right? Tomorrow can wait. James talks about that too. You're just a vapor. So you have been changed. And that's what the Spirit's talking about here. Some might argue, you know, stuff like this, and sometimes it's sophomores, and sometimes it's people that are just flat out confused about spirituality. But aren't we what we think? And for some conversations, that's certainly true. But the Bible explicitly states that we, quote-unquote, aren't just our minds. It says we are mind, body, soul, spirit, etc. For example... You don't think love. You love. You don't think love. You love. It's minimally. Love is minimally. I don't look, I'm not even going to stand before you right now because God is love. And for me to describe love fully, I would have to be able to describe God fully, which I cannot do. It's unfathomable. His gift, indescribable. God is love, right? So I can't think God into a box, can I? So you don't think love, you love. It's minimally an emotion that many a fine poet has tried to capture. For example, read Song of Solomon. He was in love. (laughs) Fine. But did he actually capture the essence of God? No. No. 
he described an expression of his own love towards another individual. Great. But that's an, minimally an emotion. The simple fact is, up here on the board, making distinctions. Love is not a thought. It's an emotion. Do we have thoughts about love? Of course we do. Do we learn about love? Agape, phileo, these kinds of things in the Bible? Of course we do. But at the end of the day, for love to be able to bear any real fruit, it's not a thought, it's actually an emotion, minimally. Same goes with humility. Is humility a thought? No. It might produce certain thinking, it might promote, it might motivate certain thinking, but humility in of itself is not a thought. Think about before you were saved. You didn't have any real thoughts about God other than He existed. Think about that. God, in other words, worked with humility. How about spirituality? Pain. Is pain a thought? You might say, I'm in pain, and have a whole lot of creative words behind that. But pain, suffering, these are not thoughts. These are realities. These are things that affect other things than just our mind. Is that fair to say? Of course it's fair to say. So that we can't think everything into a box. That just makes us cold-hearted lovers, which many of you probably know people like that. Maybe people listening to my voice right now are that exact person. I don't know. But there's nothing worse than a cold-hearted lover. Someone who's thought love into a box, categorized it away as some thing on a shelf that they can't actually, they don't really actually want to be soulish about their relationships with others. Everything's a thought. Everybody's categorized. Everybody's over here. Everything This way there, they're protected. They never let anybody in. Well, assuming we are what we think, so to speak, in the strictest sense, is intellectual arrogance, which is void of heart. You see, arrogance will argue that if you understand something academically, then you have experience with it. But that's a lie. However, that's one of the great lies that Jesus blasted the religious Jews for many times in Scripture about. They said, we understand this thing. Yeah, he goes, but you don't get it. There's a difference. Your mind's in it, but your heart's not in it. That's exactly what he said over and over and over to the religious Jews. He says, yeah, you might have the law memorized, but you don't know the spirit of it. At the end, he's going to say, get away from me. I never knew you. Did we not prophesy? Prophesy means teach in general. Did we not prophesy in your name, Lord? He's going to say, get away from me. I never knew you. There's going to be a lot of people, I think, that are going to be shocked at which judgment seat they're going to be at. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Go to Matthew 21, 23. Look, Paul says in... Um, what, 1 Corinthians 13. If you have all these things, if I have all these things, but I don't have love, guess what I am? A clanging symbol. Shut up. Do you understand? You're nothing more than a clanging symbol. That's what the Jewish, the religious Jews were. Anyways. Matthew 21, 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? 
Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? They began reasoning. There's your first cue. Reasoning with their minds, in other words. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answered Jesus, they said, answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, you don't have the heart for it. You don't have the heart for, for me. You don't have the heart for any of this. Up here on the board. Jesus piqued the hearts of the religious people, but they reasoned with their minds and arrived at, we do not know. Had their hearts been truly changed, if they were believers, they would have understood Jesus. Had their hearts been changed, they would have understood Jesus. They weren't shy on doctrine, so to speak. They weren't shy on Scripture. They were masters of it, so to speak. But they missed the whole point. Jesus continues from yet another angle into the same basic issue. The Spirit's referring to this morning with all of us. So keep concentrating. Look at verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard and he answered I will not but afterward he regretted it and went the man came to the second and said the same thing and answered I will sir but he did not go which of the two did the will of his father they said the first Jesus said to them truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you another point on distinctions up here on the board Simply saying that you understand God's will isn't enough. One's heart must be changed, which is something God will only do for the humble. Echoes back of the idea of not being able to force anything on God. Simply saying that you understand God's will isn't enough. One's heart must be changed, which is something God will only do for the humble. Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward, so as to believe him. So feeling remorse, that has really very little to do about thinking. Thinking might be behind it, but at the end of the day, we're talking about the heart of these people. That is what Jesus is getting at. He said, you didn't even feel remorse afterwards. Up here on the board from Meta Melami in the Greek, just so you understand what this word means, from Meta, change after being with, mellow, care, be concerned with. Properly, to experience a change of concern after a change of emotion, and usually implying to regret. Falling into emotional remorse afterwards. That's not a thinking issue, folks. This is a heart issue. God gave you emotions for a reason. You're not supposed to be an emotional basket case, an unbridled, you know, loopy type person. Because there is thinking that keeps things in check. But emotions are real. And they're powerful. And God gave them to us for a reason. So in other words, we don't, we're not sanctified 
until these things come with it, until our very being, our hearts are changed. I know people right now, I've never named them, that have hearts that are incredible for Jesus Christ. But I could ask them right now, what's uh, John 1, 1 say? John, or, well, I could ask them something, you know, what's John, 1 John 1, 8 say? I know what they say. I could ask another person, that person be able to answer the second question, but their heart is terrible. They have no love for others. They have only love for themselves. It's disgusting. They're intellectual, but they miss the whole thing. Which one do you think is godly? Which one is more sanctified? Which one gets it? What do you think Jesus Christ was all about? Think about that. You see, the Pharisees didn't have any heart. They had a lot of knowledge. They were smart. Just to get into the in-group, they had to be smart in the first place. But they didn't have any heart. And that's what Jesus said. He says, you don't even feel remorse. Why? Because you have no heart. You have a heart. You know what I'm saying. Figuratively speaking, you have no heart. Hopefully you know what I mean by that. What Jesus was pointing out was something fundamental to all of us right now. So please listen. If the spiritual life, especially something as fundamental as experiential sanctification, is a heartless endeavor for you, if it's merely a college-type education, merely academics, and if you think that that is living the spiritual life, you have a lot to learn from Jesus' words here. This concept before us right now is at the very core of every lesson I've taught over the past 60 hours. What was the gospel about? A person. Jesus is not a doctrine. He is a person. Jesus is someone we learn to love, we relate to. You don't relate to a bunch of adjectives on paper. You relate to other human beings, of which Jesus Christ is. So this is at the very core of what I've been teaching now for 60 hours. To our previous sister points, again, distinctions. Love is not a thought, it's an emotion. Same goes with humility, spirituality, pain, etc. These things are not thoughts, in other words. They're not merely thoughts. Is there thinking? Does the mind supernaturally meld with the spirit and the soul? Of course it does. But you are not just your mind. You're not a little brain on a stool or in a carriage, right, that you push around. You just fill it with more stuff. No, you're much, much more than just a brain. Assuming we are what we think, in the strictest sense, is intellectual arrogance, which is void of heart. Arrogance will argue that if you understand something academically, then you have experience with it. However, that's one of the great lies that Jesus blasted the religious Jews for many times in Scripture. We're still in the middle of Matthew 21, 23 to 45. If those things didn't sink in, Jesus gave them yet another parable to think about. Look at verse 33, 21, 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built the tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. 
Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine grows, saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Up here on the board. <clears throat> Only a heartless person could have ever killed Jesus. For if the religious Jews had hearts for Christ, had they been truly saved, they wouldn't have sought to murder him. They would have loved him. Scripture reveals their hearts far from God's, even though they were educated in his law. They were heartless intellectuals. Hmm. That's an important distinction, folks, because when we're talking about the practical side of sanctification, sure, part of sanctification, you would argue the front end of it at least, is learning the Word of God, right? And it's that Word of God implanted that the Spirit is able to use and supernaturally grow you over time. We spend it on life, you know, uh, 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith, all these things sort of begin to coalesce. You go through life, blah, blah, blah. You grow up, but you have been changed. You don't just get more doctrine or more scripture. You have been changed. That's the difference between a sanctified person and an unsanctified one. There's a lot of intellectual giants that are unsanctified. Some, many of them, I believe, are probably not even saved, like these people. The point the Spirit's making here this morning is the same one he's been making for quite some time now, up here on the board. That is, God is after us. You, quote-unquote. Which, although us includes our minds, where our thoughts are, us is much bigger including our hearts, our spirits, and our souls. You know, the, the Bible, plenary scripture, does not whittle us down into just our thoughts. The Bible talks often about us as being certain things, as being changed, as being sanctified. It's not just our mind that grows. We grow. And we're all of these things, right? So all of these things have to mature. So using their own logic, Jesus proves his point. Look at verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? So they basically killed everyone. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Isn't that funny? He's talking about them. They're the vine growers, right? They're the arrogant people. He will bring those wretches to a, uh, to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. <laughs> Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builder rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Hmm. You know, arrogance never likes to be discovered, does it? Arrogance doesn't like to be called out. Arrogance doesn't like to be approached this way. 
As wonderful as it is to read Paul's writing in the New Testament, if you don't first, this is a side note, if you don't first master Jesus' words, you are truly remiss. I think that's what happens, to be honest with you. Way too many churches, way too many religions spend way too much time with only Paul, who was, as I've taught you, either what expounding or defending the gospel. Right? Laying down certain theology, blah, blah, blah. Not like Jesus didn't know it all. And people become academic because of the nature of Paul's mission as sort of a defense attorney. But if you want to know the heart of the matter, go to the red letters. If you want to know the truth about the gospel, reality, go to the red letters. And if you've been missing out on the red letters, then you've missed out on his heart. So as wonderful as it is and necessary to read Paul's writing in the New Testament, if you don't first master Jesus' words, you are truly remiss. Let's look at another verse, uh, one that we considered on Thursday. Go to Romans 12.2 now, speaking of Paul. Romans 12.2. And I hope you see what the Spirit's really trying to do for you. He's making distinctions. Romans 12.2 And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I give you some emphasis on be and by up here on the board. Be you, in other words, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look closely at what Scripture is stating. You are literally transformed. The cause is the renewing of your mind, but the mind is not the final objective. You are. Your person, your heart, your spirit, your soul, these kinds of things. You have to be changed. You understand? There are two ways to look at the spiritual life. Either one, God works through us like a marionette, like we're little puppets, and then if we somehow sin or something, He cuts the strings. Or, God changes us thoroughly, and His Spirit helps guide us further. Well, which one is it? What do you think God wants? Well, one of the easiest ways to put things in perspective, I do this all the time, by the way, I would recommend it to you. Anytime you're contemplating something that might seem a little bit difficult, go to the end game. If you understand general, what, in general what sanctification means, you know that there's an end game. We call it ultimate sanctification. Well, what does the end game, if we're trying to ask ourselves, well, which one is it? Are we supposed to be puppets, or is he literally going to change us and then send us a helper? Which one is it? We'll go to the end game, which is ultimate sanctification. What's that going to be like? Are we going to be a bunch of puppets, or are we going to be changed up here on the board? So just looking forward helps, even now. Are we going to be little puppets in heaven or completely changed, worshiping him as individuals with our own individually changed hearts? Which one do you think it is? Scripture reveals the latter to be true. So, why in the world would we suppose that we are like puppets now, experientially, if ultimately we aren't meant to be that at all? 
Paul stated unequivocally that he was changed by grace. Go to 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians 15.10. God's not going to go, I'm going I'm to I'm gonna sanctify you in one direction in time, and then I'm going to sanctify you in a completely different way, ultimately. That's not how he works. That's not what Scripture reveals. 1 Corinthians 15.10, so that we know that whatever we believe now about experiential sanctification, it has to be tracking towards ultimate sanctification. Like Paul says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. That's a literal statement. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That's more figuratively speaking, a.k.a. grace doesn't actually do the spiritual life. A changed person does, a, does as a result of being changed by grace. So let's look at that Greek word, aimi, again, up here in the board. When he says, I am what I am, aimi, in the Greek, means to be, exist. It's a sum, total, if you would. Existence, for example, without explicit limits. Properly convey straightforward being. There's not a surrogate being implied. It's who you are, in other words. God's changed who you are. Okay? When the Bible states that you are something, then you are. When the Bible states that you are something, then you are. Disclaimer, he's not trying to change the flesh. That thing gets worse and worse. But this whole thing that's called you, you grow up. And the more you grow up, the less influence the flesh has. Why? Because your heart's changed. You say, in the middle of it all, okay, the Spirit's encouraged me to do this, and my flesh is encouraging me to do this. But I'm changed, so I'm going to do more of this than I used to of that. That's not just a thinking issue. Why would I do that then? Because I love Jesus Christ more than I did five years ago. I love Him all the more, and because I love Him all the more, I want to be pleasing, and because I want to be pleasing, then I'm going to listen to His agent, his helper, the one he sent, the one he said he was going to send, to guide me in time as a changed person. And I'm going to stop listening to that thing. You know, this flesh with all its lusts. So when you're... The Bible says, look, there's no such thing as a surrogate in view. When the Bible says that you are something, then you are. Paul said, I am, I me. I am what I am. I'm not what I used to be. I'm a different man now. Why? I got knocked down. I got saved. I spent three years away from it all. He grew me in a certain way, and then he put me on the mission field. And as he put me on the mission field, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm growing up. And it's all by the grace of God. But he says, I am. When you're saved and sanctified, you don't lose your sense of identity. You don't become identical to Jesus. You move towards ultimate sanctification, which as you as an individual without all which is you as an individual without all the awful baggage. That's the difference. Ultimately, you're not going to have the old sin nature. It's going to be gone. But what about now? Why were you fully engrossed? Why was that thing, why did that thing have, why were you filled, that's proper to say, by the way, why were you filled by the flesh or Satan? 
like Ananias was, right? Why were you filled by the flesh much more so 10 years ago than you are now? Because you're growing up. Because you're growing up. He's changing your heart, not just your mind. So understanding I am. The difference between the sanctified believer and the unsanctified one is that the prior attributes, attribute, excuse me, all good things about them, including their personal spiritual maturation to God's grace, whereas the latter takes credit for those things. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, John 8, 58. And as a side note, you're not being arrogant or taking credit for being who you are as a sanctified individual, as long as you remember who changed you. Hint, it wasn't you. To really drive this point home, go to John 8.58, where we see that Greek word, I me again. John 8.58. So you have to be okay with that. People seem to be gun-shy about saying, this is who I am. John 8.58. I don't want to confuse the situation, but for those of you who really get this right now, this is one of the tactics that the truly intellectually arrogant use. Probably maybe one person understood what I just said. I don't mean to be discouraging, but maybe I'm not explaining myself. All I can tell you is that for some of you, the reason why your thinking has been awry on this is because you came from a system of thinking that was intellectually arrogant, that taught you that you are what you think. And that's not the whole of Scripture. That's what the Spirit's saying. That's not the whole of Scripture. Jesus, in John 8:58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Same Greek word, I me. Look, up here on the board, more on that. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't say we are His image. It says we are made new in His image. Genesis 1, 27, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, implying that while righteousness becomes us as we are sanctified, we never lose our individuality. That's what we call uh, imparted righteousness. Remember the second line, experiential sanctification, imparted righteousness? While righteousness becomes us as we are sanctified, we never lose our individuality. We don't become a bunch of little drones that look just like Jesus. The Bible is very clear on this. It's the same Bible that says we are joint laborers with God. Go to Colossians 1.29. Colossians 1.29. God shows His grace by changing you. Do you understand? Colossians 1.29. For this purpose, I, uh, for this purpose also, I labor. That's a literal statement. Did anybody go to work this past week in any way, shape, or form, whether you got paid or not? Everybody did some work, right? Wasn't it you? If you were doing it as unto the Lord, was that not pleasing to God? Well, who did it? You did it. Why is there a problem? Oh, I can't take credit for that because, you know, it's what I know. He changed you so that you did it as unto the Lord. Five years ago, you were a disgruntled, poor employee. Right? The one that's bickering and murmuring about, doesn't matter who you have as a boss, they're always bad. Hey, common variable, you. Not every boss is bad. 
only in your life. That's because you're not laboring as unto the Lord. You don't understand some of the things I'm even talking about this morning or this past week. You're the person that wants to make everything academic because you don't have a heart. You haven't learned how to love yet. There's something more fundamental wrong in your life. You haven't even learned how to love yet. And the Bible says dogmatically, if you don't have love, you're a clanging symbol. Read the first epistle from John. See what he has to say about love. Hmm. Anyways. For this purpose also, I labor. That's a literal statement. It's not like he had an out-of-body experience. It wasn't like he just went like this. Okay, you ready, Holy Spirit? Make some fruit. No. He labored. He didn't say, wow, this doesn't even hurt when you're trying to stone me to death. It hurts the Holy Spirit because I'm just a puppet. Or he's been changed. He got in situations. People tried to kill him. Guess what? It hurt. Jesus Christ says, I am. I'm not, I am. Was he any less I am when he was hanging on the cross? Did that hurt? Did it cause him pain? Absolutely. Father, take this cup from me if your will be done. Look, we're people. God created us as people. We are who we are. He changes us. We labor for him from changed hearts. So don't do that thing. Don't categorize things away academically and then suppose that you're changed because you're not if that's the extent of your spiritual life. For this purpose I also I labor. That's a literal statement. Striving according to his power, credit goes to God, which mightily works within me. We are joint laborers, folks. It's wonderful that the power of God works within us. Absolutely. God indwells us, the whole Trinity. But we're still us. That's a supernatural thing. Don't ask me to explain it any more than that. Because I don't think it's explainable. Academics will carve it up and pretend to explain it, and then they get to put you over there and God over there and this whole thing. But who can stand up right now and teach this congregation what exactly it means to be in Christ? I know what the benefits are. I know what... But what does that mean? I mean, how do we fuse? All right, tell me the difference between soul and spirit. Oh, well, let me tell you. One is sukkos. Shut up. One is pneuma. Shut up. That's wonderful. But you don't get a darn thing about what the Spirit's been trying to say. You go in there with like little Ginsu knives. See, now that I chop it all up, I can control it all because then it's all like little Lego pieces. When God says, cut it out, what are you doing? I didn't even give you the Bible to do that thing. I was thinking about that, I think it was last night. Or first, I don't know, it's all blur now. How, <laughs> look, the Bible, the Bible wasn't meant to be carved up like sushi. Do you know what I'm saying? The word, when you hear the word, what do you think? What do you think? Do you think Jesus? Or do you think categorical doctrines? When you hear the word. This all relates. That's the point. If you don't understand who you are, 
that God's grace has really changed you and that is a wonderful, magnificent thing, who would have known? If you don't understand that, if you think this is just another, let me go pick up some more academics, you're missing it. I'm telling you right now, you're missing it. Holy. Because I can get an unbeliever and even some monkeys and parrots to regurgitate Scripture. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. In this verse, labor refers to working to the point of exhaustion, something he did. Striving refers to agonizing, as originally used in athletic event, something he did. Yet Paul never lost sight of the big picture, that God's will was being done through him. Would Paul have done the things he was doing prior to being saved? Nope. But there he writes that wonderful statement in verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Some might say, well, it's the Spirit that was working through Paul. He's just a vessel, for we are merely, quote, filled with the Spirit. So any good we produce is really his fruit. Well, let me ask you a question then. What about Abraham? If you know anything about theology, smart guy, you know that Old Testament saints weren't, quote, indwelled. This is a church age phenomenon. Mystery doctrine, smarty pants. What about Abraham or David or anyone in the Old Testament before the indwelling of the spirit of the church age? See, false doctrines always implode upon themselves. All you have to do is look at plenary scripture. Look at the whole Bible. If something doesn't fit, throw it out. Throw it out. I don't care how long you've clung to that thing, how useful it's been to your ridiculous life of unlovingness. Is that a word? It is now. Because you understood it, right? DJ's like, oh, I totally use that word all the time. I make up whatever I want. <laughs> I don't have love, I got nothing. If you, don't have, if you don't have some love in you, it goes all the way back to the rudimentary cause, which is the first 20 hours of, the, of our lessons. You might not even be saved. But that's another story. We've covered that ad nauseum. Let's move on. When, they bore, when these Old Testament saints bore good fruit for Jesus Christ, not even knowing their Messiah's name yet, were they not part of the process? That's what hyper-doctrinalization can do to a soul. It's awful. The simple point is up here on the board. He's trying to say, listen, I'm changing you. I'm not making a bunch of drones. I'm changing you. Just like his son knew exactly who he was, we ought to know exactly who we are in him. Concentrate. Then I've got to pick a spot to close here, it seems. Living the spiritual life. It's not about doing this or that specifically as a part of some homemade plan. It's about being filled. Pleroo means to be fulfilled. The control aspect of being filled is a blessed surrender not a disgruntled adolescent submission. You can know you need to surrender. You can know you need to confess. But if, you're not, if it's not a blessed surrender, if it's not from the heart, if it's not something you want to do, then you're still not necessarily being filled. You're doing something religiously for the sake of doing something religiously, which reeks of the flesh. 
A lot of flesh-filled religious folks out there, folks, with no hearts for Christ whatsoever. Oh, they'll say they do. They'll do the soup kitchens. Oh, look at me. I'm, I love Jesus. I'm going to wear a cross. I might even have a, something in my ear. But I really don't care about other people because I, I don't even know what love is. I'm a vapid soul with a lot of doctrine. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. He said, you're a bunch of worthless people. I'm going to throw you out. I'll take the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Hmm. Boy, it puts it in perspective, doesn't it? All you got to do is read your Bible, folks. It's all you got to do. Read your Bible with the faith of a child. It's all right there. I'm just a tour guide. Hey, check out. First mm-hmm. Thessalonians 5, 16 and 19. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Oh, well, that's all from thinking, you know. I know that God does grace me out, therefore I will give thanks in everything. I know that this and then, therefore I will. No, you're changed. You want to live the spiritual life, your heart has changed. You're not thinking all the time. You do think. You do ponder. You do grow as a result. But you go through life as you, right? As you. Your heart has been changed. Your heart goes out. You see a need, what happens? Your heart goes out to it. Not, it is the right thing to do because First John 4, blah, 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 says it's the right thing to do or else I don't have love. I must have love, therefore I must do these things, and I must prove to myself through my thinking that I'm a, 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 a Christian. Or you see a need and your heart goes, immediately, I would like to fill that need. I would like to satisfy, I would like to address that need. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. The Spirit's working in me right now, saying these very things. Don't quench Him. He's telling you straight up in your face. Realize who you are in Christ Jesus. Realize what sanctification means. This is very practical. It's not this theology, but this is a practical issue. I'm changing you. This passage amplifies the principle from Tuesday evening's class. Living the spiritual life is an attitude, not a regiment. It's being in Christ in the moment, not just knowing it, although that precedes being. We sense His presence in everything. We sense His presence in everything. Look, these are supernatural things. People come up to me, hey, how do I know when the Spirit's talking to me? What do you mean, how do you know? You'll know because Scripture says you'll know. I just wrote a blog on that. You'll know because Scripture says you'll know. Why are you asking me? I don't know how he talks to you. He might be like, hey, listen, knucklehead. I don't know. That's what he calls me. I'm just kidding. Right? How do I know how, you know, some, some people have asked me in the past, how do you know what to write down in your lessons? What do you mean? How am I going to explain that? Truth be told. All I know is I've been changed. I listen to him. I pray on it. And blah, 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 here you go. $1,500 later, eight years later. I, haven't, I can't believe it's almost eight years, by the way. DJ and I are talking about that. How the heck do I know? 
I don't know how to explain that, but I know it's true because I know he does it. And you know how I know? You're all being changed. Those of you who have decided to be humble about things, I'm just a vessel, you see? But he changed me and uses me as an instrument of righteousness to deliver you. I know it sounds ridiculous. Sounds ridiculous. Trust me, if you knew me 20, 30 years ago, you'd be like, that's really ridiculous. How does he use any of you to encourage me? How does he use any of you to do your spiritual gifts in the local assembly? How does he use you to, at, at work to evangelize somebody? Can you believe you actually evangelize somebody? Think of yourself 20 years ago. You'd be like, I don't give a crap if anybody was saved. Now you're like, all I want to do is what? I want to know Christ and him crucified. Who's next? Woo, let's do this thing. Jeez, I thought this was a martini bar. It is. Maybe there's some people in here. I don't know what you're doing in the martini bar. <laughs> doing your chocolate martini. For 15 bucks. You know what I'm saying. This is about being who he wants you to be. This is about living a life attached to him. Realizing that there are supernatural things that, guess what, you can't make academic. You can't. You can't. Who the heck can make love? Let's just end with that. Who can make love something academic? I know who wants to make it academic, but who can really make it academic? How do you describe your love? If I asked you all right now, write down a piece of paper. You can stay here all week if you want, or you can stay here five minutes. Write down on a piece of paper your love for Jesus. Everybody would have something different. How could that be? And anybody humble would walk away and go, I still have a lot more to say. Because love is not thinking, folks. So embrace the change. That's all I can say. Amen? Let's close with a video. Get the lights, guys.
Lest I forget who I am to you That I belong to you Let's just close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for such a wonderful message, a message of truth that sets us free. Thank you for sanctifying us like you promised you would. And thank you for making it clear that it is by your grace that we live the spiritual life. We pray, Father, that your will be done through each of us as vessels of mercy and that as you continue to sanctify us to whatever degree we are indeed changed, that we increase in glorifying you. We pray also for those unable to be with us this morning, that they understand that we are with them in spirit. May they be encouraged always, and may we encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.